Welcome to my party, we're just getting started A life is a dream or a nightmare scarring Hand me a drink cause I think I'm going all in Welcome back everybody to the Red, Orange, and Blue podcast I am your host as always, the Mexinadian And we got a very hockey heavy podcast episode for you guys today uh, not that, not too much in the way of NFL and MLB and NBA news because, A, the Pistons aren't worth a damn to talk about. Uh, Lions season is over and Tigers haven't started yet. So it's going to be primarily hockey, but I do want to mention the NFL Pro Bowl did happen. I didn't watch it because I don't really care about it. But from what I've seen, uh, the Lions had a pretty decent showing. Gibbs and Laporta. Uh, were two of the bigger names, as well as uh, St. Brown had a decent showing in the games aspect or whatever. Gibbs had a uh, Gibbs had a good showing in the game, uh, and then support Laporta and St. Brown had good showings in the contest itself. So at least that's what I see, and I don't care for the Pro Bowl. I care for the Pro Bowl less than I do about the NHL All Star games. So take with that as you will. But that was about all I know of the NFL Pro Bowl. Uh, And so let's get into the hockey stuff because that's what I've got for you guys today. Uh, And we're going to start off with the Red Wings loss to Ottawa in overtime. It wasn't a bad loss per se. Both teams clearly had their minds set on the break. They were two of four teams, I think, that night that had a game to play that weren't on vacation yet. Um... So both teams clearly had a foot out the door, and a lot of people were going into this game expecting it to be, you know, fight night at the Joe 2.0 because of what happened in their last meeting against Ottawa and, you know, the bad feelings about that. You had Clem Costin in the um, in the lineup this time, so people were expecting it to be fight night at the Joe 2.0. But if you looked at the context and everything, Detroit is try, is in a the second wild card spot, and Ottawa is at the time dead was at the time dead last in the standings. So it was pretty apparent that Detroit wasn't going to come out and just start beating the shit out of the Senators. It just wasn't going to happen, and vice versa. I mean, if things got out of control and Detroit started running away with the game, Ottawa was 100% going to do that because they're just a bunch of cry little cry-piss babies, and they don't know how to handle losses gracefully. But regardless, it was a 3-2 loss in overtime, definitely the most one of the most boring games I've watched all season. Um, and there's a big thing with this game. We'll get into it. But let's get into the scoring first. Daniel Sprong opens up the scoring with his 13th of the season from Valeno. It was a beautiful play. Sprong had a wide open net, essentially, from a great pass off of Valeno. Thank God we were playing Corpusello this game. Although Corpusello came up with some big saves. Uh, but then Ottawa scores twice in the second period. Then in the third period, the captain, Dylan Larkin, gets his 23rd of the season uh, from Comfer and Mata. And then we go to overtime, which Pinto scored his second goal of the season in overtime. But that's not what I that's not what I talk about with overtime. Overtime is so unbelievably, incredibly fucking boring. Like it could be fun from time to time. You know, we seen with the uh, I don't even remember what game it was, but it was a Detroit game, and there, it was really back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, Detroit ended up winning that game, but. 95% of the time, if you don't win the opening faceoff in overtime, you're not getting the puck back unless the team decides to shoot it and you manage to get 
possession of it afterwards. Um, or your goalie covers it, you win the face off, and then you get it back, and then you go do the same thing. It's just so unbelievably boring. Because every time, especially with man on man coverage, like they designed the NHL put three on three overtime in the game to try and create more make it a little bit more wild make it a little bit more crazy and entertaining for overtime and it was when it first came out but now it's been so strategized to no end man-on-man coverage if you don't have a shot just skate back out to the center of the ice and then regroup it's so unbelievably boring and you that was there was no better no and I, I mean no better example than this game because holy shit, the moment Detroit lost the opening face-off, they didn't get the puck at all. Not a single time did they get the puck. And sure, that could be a test to Detroit's overtime prowess. But at the same time, it's not just them that it happens with. Every team in the league, if you don't win that opening face-off and you... Or don't spend your time trying to shoot the puck because you want to keep possession of the puck. Overtime is basically a one-team game. You know, it's all about possession. It's all about keeping the puck. You do not shoot unless you have the best possible scoring chance. And it's, oh my god, I just can't get over how fucking boring. That was the only thing I could take away from this game is how fucking boring overtime is. That was legitimately the only thing I could take away from this game. Because nothing else fucking happened, and God forbid anything happened in the three-on-three overtime to decide the fucking game. It's just, holy shit. The NHL needs to do something about it. They need to do something where, not like a shot clock, but like, if you go, if you, in three-on-three overtime, if you go in, in in the offensive zone, then you can't willingly back out of the zone or something like that. I don't know. They got to do something, though, because it's it's just insane how much strategy, how strategized to no end it's become, especially with man-on-man coverage. When you're on man-on-man coverage in five-on-five, it's different because there's 10 guys on the ice vying for spots in one zone. There's chaos. People are running into each other. But when you're in three-on-three overtime and one goal decides the game, if you don't have the puck, oh, you're defending the shit out of your guy. You're not going to play aggressively to get the puck away from somebody. No, you're going to stay back, defend, block shots. That's what you're going to do. You're not going to go like five-on-five. You're not going to go pressure the guy on the blue line because... Because at least with then, you've got the chance where they're probably going to pass it to one of their teammates who isn't covered because you've got two or three guys in front of the net blocking shots and clearing defenders. So you've got one or two other guys on your team that are open that you can get the puck to. No, with five on, with three on three overtime, if you pressure anybody, one of two things is going to happen. One, you're going to get outmoved and then, boom, perfect sh- perfect shot scoring opportunity. Or two, they're going to back the fuck out of the zone to regroup, possibly line change, and then it's just going to go back in. It's going to be the same fucking thing. And it's, I, it's just so boring, dude. I cannot watch it. And like, honestly, at this point, I prefer the shootout over to overtime. Like... There are some games where overtime, yes, it could probably be the best part of the game. Detroit's had one or two of those this season. But 
like at least with the shootout, you can see player skills with the, the stick handling skills on display. With overtime, it's just okay. Uh, there's not a clear shot here. Let's back out. Try again. That's all it is. It's literally the definition. It's literally the hockey version of turn it off and then on again. Like that's all it is. So. I had to get that rant out because I don't think I've ever ranted about OT publicly before. Maybe, I mean, probably on Twitter, but I, not in this type of format, not in a video, not in a podcast, not anything. I don't think I've ranted about overtime like this before. So that was my overtime rant. Take with it what you will. I'm pretty sure everybody shares just about the same opinion and that overtime, three on three overtime is fucking boring. And that's what I'm sticking with there. So yeah, Detroit loses 3-2 to two in overtime against Ottawa. Yeah, you would like to be a division rival in Ottawa, but Ottawa's not making the playoffs anyways. You still got a point out of it. And I'll give credit where credit's due. Ottawa, you guys finally caught up to the Columbus Blue Jackets. Congratulations. You are now tied for 15th in the conference. So congrats. Put the banner up. Anyways, with uh, that aside, we the Red Wings have a pretty... A fairly difficult schedule uh, coming up. They've got, when they come back from the All-Star break, which we will talk about, um, they've got, they don't play until the 10th of February. So we've still got over a week left. We still got a full week, like five days left before Red Wings hockey. And then they come home, they play at 1 p.m. at home on Saturday against the Vancouver Canucks, who are. They're still killing it. Um, they are still first in the Pacific by a pretty good margin. Um, they are 8-0-2 in their last 10, 15-7-3 away, and 18-4-2 at home with a plus-59 goal differential. Or plus 59 goal differential, my bad. So it's going to be a test for Detroit. But if there was one thing, if there's one thing I've noticed about Vancouver, watching what games I do, they are pretty much just all offense-based. Very, very little defense to talk about. Um, They generally rely on Demko to keep them in games, more or less. And that's likely what they're going to continue to do, especially against Detroit. So what Detroit needs is what they've had all January, and that is uh, their depth scoring to come into play. But we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. Um, But... Yeah, their upcoming schedule isn't anything easy. Like I said, they got Vancouver on Saturday, then they got a two-day break, and then it's Edmonton away. Then they've got a, their East Coast, like Northeast, not East, Northwest uh, road trip, essentially, where they take on Edmonton then at home, at, uh, in Edmonton, Vancouver in Vancouver, Calgary in Calgary, and then Seattle in Seattle. So, realistically speaking, it'll be tough. Realistically, um, it's not going to be easy because, uh, unlike last time when we went there, where we dummied Vancouver two times and, in a row, and uh, then beat up Edmonton and Calgary, it, the all these teams except for maybe Calgary and Seattle are, yeah, except for Calgary and Seattle are killing it right now. So, like, Edmonton's on a 16-game win streak, which is wild. I don't think I've talked about that yet. Edmonton's on a 16-game win streak, you guys. I'm pretty sure the NHL record is 17 straight, and that was Montreal, I think. So, they could very well do it. They, their next matchup is against the uh, Golden Knights, if I remember correctly. 
So that's going to be something to watch. But if they if they manage to stop the Golden Knights in their tracks, then their next few games are against. I think their next two games are against Anaheim and LA, which is almost a guaranteed win for them at this point. And then it's Detroit in Vancouver, and not Vancouver, and Edmonton. So there is a less than there is a greater than zero chance that Detroit could be taking on an Edmonton team that has won 19 straight. So part of me kind of wants that because that part of me wants to see Detroit and Edmonton's win streak because I feel like that'd be great. But at the same time, the other part of me doesn't want to see that because that part of me knows damn well that an Edmonton that's on, that on fire is going to beat the shit out of you. So it's it'll be interesting. It's gonna be fun to watch. Realistically, it'll be it'll be a fun game to watch. I believe. Um, but with that being said, let's check in on Detroit's playoff race because as I discussed about, as I said earlier, Detroit currently holds the second wild card spot in the East uh, with fifty eight points. They are six points ahead of the team right behind them, which is the Islanders, and then seven points ahead of Pittsburgh, New Jersey, and Washington. So it's still not like Detroit's still not running away with it. They're tied with um, with Toronto. I mean, by points percentage, Toronto beats them because Toronto's got three games in hand on Detroit. But they are one point behind Tampa Bay, who's in third. And if they actually beat Ottawa last night, I believe they would have taken third place away from Tampa Bay going into the All-Star break. But... That's besides the point. Um, the East is still by no means set. You know, you've got your you, you got the f- four teams essentially that you know are going to make it, being Boston, Florida, New, uh, the Rangers, and the Hurricane and Carolina. But other than that, and it's anybody's game. Third place is anybody's game in either division. Uh, Philly has lost five straight. Um, they're five and five in their last ten. So. And they've got a sub-500 record at home. So Philly, you could easily see dropping out. I think at this point, the teams in the Metropolitan Division are more looking at Philadelphia than they are Toronto and Detroit. Um, because the Islanders are only four points back of Philadelphia. So I think in this point, because uh, 58 points for Detroit and Toronto, 56 for Philly... The two wild card spots are higher up than in the league than uh, Philadelphia is. So your teams like New York, Pittsburgh, New Jersey, and Washington—they're all metropolitan. So they are probably looking more to getting catching up to Philadelphia than they are Detroit and Toronto at this point. Um, so, but that doesn't mean, like I said, doesn't mean by any means Detroit is set for the playoffs just yet. Uh, we do still need to see a bit more separation there. And it's always possible one of these teams goes on a run and it's a good enough run for them to leapfrog other teams, stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see down the stretch. Um, and the the primary things, you know, a lot of people are talking about how Detroit got there and how they can keep it going. And personally, if you ask me, the biggest thing, in my opinion, is pretty obvious. It's Alex Lyon. Alex Lyon came in by sheer coincidence when, during the Sweden trip, Vili Husso 
had, you know, had his wife went into labor. He had his daughter. So Alex Lyon was forced to come in and play the second half of the back-to-back. And I'm not going to lie, there was a part of me that was fairly certain that they were just going to have Reimer play both games. But I think after the Ottawa game where he ducked away from the puck, which is still beyond me, I understand. You know, I can give him a little bit of leeway because even as a goalie, if I seen like if I played a goalie my entire career, even if I even if I did that, if I seen a black rubber hardened rubber object coming at me at 90 miles an hour, I would probably duck too. Um, and that's after I was facing the other way. So that that's I can give him a little bit of leeway for that. But it, your whole job as a goalie is to stop the puck, dude. So I've talked about that at length. Um, but Alex Lyon, ever since that game, he came in and flopped his dick on the table and said, this is my net and nobody is taking it from me. And he has proved time and time again that it is his net. He is at this point, Detroit's bona fide number one goaltender. And he's only making, I think he's uh, what? 850,000, 900,000 a year. So we got him for next year as well. Um, but it does create a, the log jam and net comes back because Huso came back from injury and he is, he went, was sent down to Grand Rapids for a one game conditioning stint. And he shut out the Belleville senators three Oh, in his one game. So that, asks us, you know, that brings us to the question, where does Huso fit into all this? And personally, I think Huso becomes the backup. Um, I don't know. I think it I think it becomes a Huso Lion net, more or less. I think Lion will get the majority of the starts, but I do think it'll be more of a 1A, 1B between Huso and Lion. And all we need is Huso to come back and play average goaltending. Just if he can get, because I think the league average in goaltending is like 908 or something like that. If he can do that for the rest of the season and Lyon keeps playing at his pace, then I genuinely, then I, I think that's the recipe to get Detroit into the playoffs. Um, and a lot of people will say, well, Huso, I've seen a lot of people say Huso's been, Huso was bad this year and he sucks and stuff like that. I even have seen somebody say he's an AHL goaltender, which is beyond the dumbest thing I've ever played or seen. And, uh, the, I mean, their whole reasoning was because he has, you know, a sub 900 save percentage with the Red Wings. And what they didn't take into account at all is, like, they were bona fide just look at the numbers and see what's going on and then the eye stats and whatnot but they clearly just had tunnel vision on Huso and didn't look at the rest of the team because if they did they would know that the first half of the season Huso was fantastic and then he got injured and came back he wasn't the same and at the time he came back after his injury as well, the team wasn't the same. Half the team had pretty much been gone. Like, that team had uh, Taro Hirose on it, if you want to know how bad things got. It had Taro Hirose on the team. So, that that was that was how bad the team got after, you know, right around the trade deadline when Huso came back. So, very few teams, very few goaltenders in the league can hold that caliber of a team up to the playoff pace that they had. Um, 
But what a lot of people seem to be forgetting is that before Huso got injured this year, uh, he was coming back to form. He played some, like in the two or three games he played before he got injured, he looked good. Like he looked like the Huso of the first half of last year good. And I don't say that lightly. Yeah, he had that boggle with Carolina that ultimately cost the Red Wings that game. But at the end of the day, in that same game, he kept it close regardless. Like, that was a, that game was pretty much because Detroit couldn't shoot the fucking puck to save their lives, which is another thing I want to press on. Detroit has, I know it doesn't look like it right now, but Detroit has a plethora, a plethora of shooting talent like just I mean look I mean look just look at the top six real quick Debrinkit, Larkin Kane Raymond um hell I mean you could probably put Comfer and Perron in there too but they're not really shooters um so let's just go with Larkin Debrinkit, Kane and Raymond top six four incredible shooters right there and then go to your bottom six. You've got Fabry. You've got Valeno. You've got Sprong. You've got who else is down there that can shot the puck like it's no one else's end. Cop's got a sneaky good shot. Like Rasmussen's got an incredible, has got a sneaky really good shot. Like it's, they've got so much, so many weapons and shooting depth, but they are so keen on just not shooting it when they can. It's almost like the team is either in this battle with themselves, like internally, uh, each player is internally battling with themselves to either not be selfish or be too generous. Like there were times where, like, I mean, I think one of the best ones was that I seen was probably in, I think it was the Carolina game where it was a two on one with Sprung and Comfer and Sprong was had had the puck and he could have shot that thing perfectly and it probably would have gone in because it was fucking Ranta in that but no he opted to stop and wait for Comfort to show up closing letting the defense close in and just giving up pretty much every opportunity that they had to shoot there that was one of the worst ones i've seen from the team and it just keeps there's a plethora of them and uh it's something that I don't know why. Like I can't nobody I don't think anybody's been able to put their finger on why the team just doesn't like to shoot the puck. Um is it a I don't know if it's a systems thing where, you know, Lund and the coaching staff there are, you know, Lund's obviously a defense first coach, but I don't know if there's another system in place where it's like, all right, we're not just going to shoot the puck. We're going to look, we're going to make plays, pass it around and look for that perfect shot. And a lot of games you just can't do that. Like especially games against Carolina, Vegas, um hell at this point Edmonton. You know, top tier teams like that, you just can't do. Florida's another good one. You just can't do that because of their defense. A lot of games you just have to shoot it at the net and see what the fuck happens. Um, you know, shoot it at the net, crash the net, hopefully pick up a rebound. Hell, get somebody in front of the net for Christ's sake. This team was home to one of the greatest net front presences ever in Thomas Holmstrom and you just don't do it. Like it is a tried and true position for 
the for the Red Wings history. Like you can put somebody like Rasmussen or Fisher. Fisher's proven he's been good at it lately. But you could put Rasmussen there. You can put hell Fabry there has been pretty decent at it. Just get somebody in front of the fucking net to pick up a rebound or just screen the goalie. Stuff like that is simple hockey, but they just don't do it. And it's cost them a lot of potential goals and scoring chances. So I don't know where the problem lies. It's got to be coaching, realistically. With that, it's got to be offensive coaching. And that's something I think needs to be adjusted with the team. Um, But on top of that, I want to get into some more uh, player talks and topics. And the first one being Mo Sider. Uh, I've seen a lot of people, and I'm going to get on my Mo Sider pedestal here 100%, because especially on Twitter, there is a lot of Mo Sider slander going around, and I will not have it. Uh, Mo Sider has been fantastic defensively, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people are starting to understand and know that Mo Sider, more than any other defenseman in the league, legitimately more than it doesn't even come close. He is getting the toughest minutes out of any defenseman in the league, and it's not close whatsoever. Um, even with Jake Wallman, he's getting like 2% more tougher time than his defensive partner. And a lot of people are like, well, they got to, if they want him to produce, people are people are basically calling him a fraud or a bust or him having a down year. It's like, no, he's literally getting the hardest minutes. And then people equate that to, well, then it's his deployment is bad. Then Lalonde needs to fix his deployment and give him, you know, one or two easier shifts. And that does happen, like, more often than people like to, <coughs> more often than people like to say, sorry about that. But they don't understand that if you take Mo Sider away from that top parent, from the top lines, then who's going to go up against the Connor McDavid's of the league, the Nikita Kucherov's, the Nathan McKinnon's? You can't put guys like Oli Mata and Justin Hall and Jeff Petrie and Shane Gosper against those guys. You just can't because they're going to get fucking cooked every which way. And I love all those guys. I love Oli Mata, Jeff Petrie is... There's a lot of Jeff Petrie slander, and I will not accept that anymore. Um, Justin Hall, while he's not, while he had a few fuck ups in the Ottawa game, I still think he's a solid third pairing defenseman. Um, you know, I mean, Jeff Petrie and Shane goes to spare. They're not defensive defensemen, really. And Oli Mata, he's the he's the epitome of defensive defenseman but he still can't really defend against Connor McDavid that well so because not many there's very few defenders in the league who can in the first place and Ole Mata is definitely not one of them so it's it, it is upsetting when I see it because clearly most of these people just look at the analytics and look at these horribly analyzed stat charts on Twitter like, there are several accounts that make these stat cards and stuff like that who show all of these, who show all the numbers, stuff like that, and they use that to judge people. And it's like, personally, I mean, don't ignore the analytics. You can find out a lot of good things from the analytics and make come to good conclusions. But personally, for me, 
the eye test is the primary thing that matters, and the eye test shows that Mo Sider is one of the best defensive defensemen in this entire league. Sure, his counting stats may not be where you want them to be. He's likely not going to hit his rookie year numbers, and it, a lot of people are equating that to saying, oh, he's already peaked in his rookie years. No, I mean, you got to take into account the kid's 22 years old. Like, he's a, he, he, he's literally one year older to, he's literally one year past the age of being able to drink legally. And you're saying he's already a bust or he's already peaked? Like, no, dude, he's still got his hockey IQ and mentality peak to come. He's still got, like, he's still got his prime. And if he's this good in his early years, then imagine what he's going to be like in his, when he's 25, 26, 27, 28. Like, just imagine that. And imagine if Detroit gets a more competent decor behind him to where he can play easier minutes and get those counting stats up. I think if Sider gets, is it, if the team's defense gets overall better and you have, like, once you get a second pairing of probably... I don't know, Edvinson and Axel Sandin Pelica, just for an example. Um, Then I think once you get something like that, then you end up getting into Cider getting more minute, more easy minutes, and Cider will likely at that point start getting into Norris conversations, and maybe, who knows, maybe he wins one? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, Cider had the unfortunate cause to be in come in the league just as Kale McCarr and Quinn Hughes are reaching their pre uh their primes so it'll be tough for Sider to win the Norris I'm not saying he's guaranteed to win one in his career but he's definitely going to be a top 10 defenseman in this league once he's once the team around him overall gets better because a lot of people use the that as like an excuse to call him bad it's like well if you need to rely on your defensive partner or your team to be to play defense then you're not good stuff like it's like no fucking people look at guys like nicholas lidstrom and whatnot and say they didn't need the team around them to be good. Look at the team that was around them. Like, if you look at Nicholas Lidstrom and Nick Cronwall, look at the team that was around them. They had two of the best two-way forwards in the entire history of hockey in Pavel Datsuk and Hendrik Zetterberg on their team. And not to mention, they had guys, they had Chris Draper, Nicholas Backstrom, Darren McCarthy. They had so many people on that team that could play defense and score goals that it 100% elevated. Do you honestly think that somebody like, let's say, just for an example, Nicholas Lindstrom, uh, Lindstrom, if he was on this year's San Jose Sharks, do you honestly think he would reach peak Lindstrom numbers? No, not even close. Like, I mean, yeah, Eric Carlson reached 100 points last season, but Eric Carlson's basically just a fucking forward. The difference with him, the difference between him and and Lidstrom are that Lidstrom was a defenseman and played defense. Eric Carlson can't play defense worth shit. Um, But yeah, I... I'm, I'm sick of the notion that Cider is a fraud or a bust, stuff like that, because the team around him isn't incredible defensively. Sure, they've locked it down more defensively now, but 
just because he's getting the toughest minutes and whatnot, his counting stats aren't there. And if his counting stats aren't there, according to the unofficial NHL rules, I guess, of being a good player, you're automatically a bad defenseman. That's a notion I cannot get behind. As a defenseman myself, I cannot get behind the notion that you have to put up fucking 50, 60 points a season to be a good, def- to be a considered an elite defenseman in the NHL. That's just not how it should be. Defensemen are there to defend. It's literally in their name. Defensemen. That is their, in, that is literally their job description. It is not defense-ish men. No, it is defensemen. You're there to stop their, that the other team from going to your end and scoring. That is your job. Not, your job is not to take the puck from your end and go to their end and score. That is not your job. Sure, there are defensemen who can do that, who also can play defense. You know, Quinn Hughes, well, Quinn Hughes can't play defense very well either. Kale McCarr, really good at it. And there were, there's were, there been defensemen in NHL history that can do it as well. But the fact of the matter is, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it, defensemen are there to defend and not to play forward. And that is my rant on that. Um, let's get into something a little bit more not ranty uh Raymond I want to talk about Lucas Raymond because currently he is sitting third in points uh for Detroit with 41 13 goals 28 assists 41 points in 50 games he's on point to have a post like a a plus seven a 70 plus season uh so it's it's good for him that's exactly what we were hoping Raymond would do um, a lot of us, I think, expect Raymond to be more of a goal scorer. But if you ask me personally, I think he's got more of the tools to be a Perron replacement in the top six. Because um, if you look at the way he plays, he definitely plays more of a Perron style than, say, an Alex Dabrinkit style or a Patrick Kane style. I think Lucas Raymond is there, is going to end up replacing Perron in uh, protecting the puck being able to make plays and when called upon get a goal or two. I think that's going to be Raymond's role. I think Raymond still has the potential to be a 30 plus to be a 30 goal scorer. He's got the shot to do it, but in the end I think he's going to end up being a Perron archetype essentially. Um, and we've seen Pran has the ability. Pran scored what twenty five goals last season. I'm pretty sure uh, twenty four goals. Yeah, he had twenty four goals, thirty two assists, fifty six points in eighty two games. So it is, it is very possible that Raymond becomes a Pran type, and that is incredible. If he, that if that's able to happen, I will one hundred percent take that for Raymond, because arguably Raymond's a better player than Pran. Um, I say arguably because Perron's got the age on him and stuff like that, so it's not really easy to compare the two. But beside, regardless, I do think he becomes the new Perron for Detroit at least, and it's it, like it, it's just going to be interesting to see how he develops with that because uh, there is still a very good potential that he becomes more of the Alex Dabrinkit, Patrick Kane archetype than the David Perron archetype. But personally, I think he's more destined to be the Perron archetype. Um, so yeah, and then this this is all culminating in the reasons why Detroit is currently in the playoffs right now. 
um, or at least the playoffs, but I shouldn't say in the playoffs. But they're right now, like I said, sitting in the wild second wild card spot. So that brings up a lot of talk about the trade deadline. Are the Red Wings buyers? Are they shouldn't be sellers if they're in this position by the trade deadline. One hundred percent, they're not sellers. Um, so it gets to okay. Well, are they buyers? Well, that's a tricky thing because, in my opinion, if you're in a wild card spot, you should not be a buyer. You should not be moving assets to get assets back. The wild being a wild card team is that weird spot. Where, especially this year, where it's more of a judgment of how the teams performed around you as well as how you performed. Right now, Detroit obviously has performed very well, and uh, the teams around them have not performed very well. So, it's, like I said, I think they should not be either. Um, Maybe you can move something to get a decent piece back but at the same time the way the roster is constructed I can't see them doing anything realistically unless it's like a player trade uh, you know you give just for an example I'm not saying I want this but it, just for an example say you move Christian Fisher and I don't know just throw a name out there Old Mata, and you get a goal score you get like maybe a Frank Vetrano back or something like that you were I mean you're not going to move two players to get Frank Vetrano but you could probably move Fisher and Vetrano for one for one more with a maybe a pick in there um actually you'd probably have to throw in like a second or a third round in there but Detroit should not is not at the point where they can start giving up assets to get players back because their prospects pool right now is filled to the brim um and especially with guys as talented that are starting to show up guys like marco casper carter mays or sebastian kosas having a good year in grand rapids and you got nate danielson who's killing it in portland right now um you know uh albert johansson's doing really well anti tuamisto surprisingly playing really well uh, Simon Edvinson and Jonathan Berggren, they should be on this team this year, but they're not. So hopefully they're on. Edvinson and Berggren should 100% be on this team next year, by the way. Um, so it's there's so, so many guys in the AHL that you can make a case that should be, that could make the team. So Detroit should not be moving any pieces for anything else that doesn't come with term. Uh, They should not be moving for rentals. They should not be looking for anything other than someone who will move the needle for this team, but also has some term on them. Um, So that's just my thought on that. Uh, Realistically, I don't, like I said, I don't think they're moving anybody. I think they're happy with the team that they have now. Um, when Kane comes back, there's going to be an interesting dilemma because then you got to healthy scratch somebody. I think the obvious choice for a lot of people is Clem Costin, but Costin's been pretty decent. So, and you can't really split up the uh, Cop Rass Fisher line because they've been really good. You can't really take anybody up out of the top six. You're probably, I mean, you're probably moving somebody down. So realistically, if you ask, you can't. Everyone's been performing so well on the team that it's hard to pick somebody out. It's a good problem, but it's difficult to pick somebody out of the lineup 
and scratch them. I think ultimately it's going to be end up being Clem Costin because then you're probably just going to move Fabry down to the fourth line with Sprong and Boleno. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be a, it's not a decision I envy for Lalonde whatsoever. Um, but yeah, and with that, I want to talk about Detroit's depth scoring again because it's it's here to stay. Apparently, we've seen that in the last in their last few games. Sprong's been killing it. Um, Fabry, Valeno, they've been creating opportunities. Ras, Rasmussen, Fisher, and Cop have become this domination line of pure adulterated hate, I think. Like, that line goes against all laws of nature, physics. Any law you can think of, it goes against it. Like, it's... Like uh, well, not any law, like law of nature and stuff like that. Any any law of science, really, that just goes again. That line on paper should just be like the most boring line in NHL history, but it works. I can't complain, and they're not boring whatsoever to watch. Uh, Fisher, he gets in there like he's such a he's such a nice, happy go lucky locker room guy that it's weird to see him go into the corners and just start shoving people, go in front of the net, spraying snow in Goldie's faces. Like, it's fantastic to watch that. Rasmussen is becoming a truly good power forward who's being able to protect the puck with his body and move guys out of the way to get the puck somewhere. And his playmaking ability is starting to show. And then Cop's just there. as Like, on that line, Cop is their shooter. Like, Cop is their goal scorer on that line, and it is so wild to say that. Um, that's not a sentence I thought I would ever speak, but yeah, Cop, it, it, Cop has surprised me quite a bit in the second half of the season so far. Um, after the very big drop that he took offensively after the first, like, month and a half of the season, so... That's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. Uh, and with that, I also want to talk about who do the Red Wings resign? You know, we're in that time where teams start resigning guys and whatnot. So I'm interested. And I think out of the entire team right now, there are really only two guys that you should move heaven and earth to try and resign. And that's Patrick Kane, Daniel Sprong. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say Shane goes to spare. But realistically, no. Um, if you sign Shane Gosespare, then that just means another year of Edmonton in the Grand, in Grand Rapids, or you gotta do something else. Because and plus, Shane Gosespare is going to with the season he's having right now, uh, because he's what right now he I think leads the team in assists. Or that Raymond Raymond leads the team in assists, but uh, yeah, it's um. Oh, Jesus Christ, that's what I wanted. Uh, He's got 25 assists, 7 goals, 32 points, and 49 games played. So he is definitely an offensive guy, obviously. We knew that. But it's not – he's definitely going to want something bigger than the – what is he getting paid? $4 million right now a year? Um, I think he's getting paid $4 million. I can't remember the exact contract. But he's going to want something bigger than that, and I don't think Detroit should really go for it. Um, personally, I think that money could go to signing Cider, Raymond, and then re-signing Sprong and Kane. I think if we're talking how much these guys should be getting, 
Uh, we've talked about the cider. I'll talk about the cider Raymond contracts in a different episode. But if we're talking extensions, I think Kane, we could make do with four million for two years, and then with Sprong, you could probably go for another two, three years at probably right around the same amount. Uh, he's probably going to be a third liner for the entire time he's here, so maybe three and a half, four million. Yeah, that would probably be about right for three or four years. Um, I wouldn't mind a four by four for Sprong, realistically. But, yeah, I'm interested to see what Eisman does, because as, also, as much as I would love, I'd love it, I would love for them to sign, resign Fisher, but I don't think it's going to happen because Fisher's a guy you can find really anywhere. And we don't know if this season is going to be an outlier for him when it comes to his chemistry with Cop and Rasmussen and his current output. So that's my thoughts on them, on uh, who Detroit should resign. And it's it's just a fun time to be a Red Wings fan, realistically. There's a lot of score. They're really fun to watch. There's a lot of scoring on the line in the game. Well, in all their games, really, now. Well, not lately. They've been playing really solid defensively, so there haven't been very many high-scoring games like there was at the first part of the season where they were scoring, like, five goals a fucking game. But regardless, it's fun to watch. The depth is definitely moving the needle in the right direction, and it's only going to get better after the All-Star break once Patrick Kane comes back. We'll have Ben Schrott back as well. Ben Schrott and Patrick Kane will definitely help this team. Not a sentence I thought I would ever be saying, but... Yeah, and with that, uh, well, actually, there's an interesting, there's a stat that just came out uh, today in that Detroit has, because this goes along with the depth scoring, um, Detroit has the most goals out of every NHL team this year, uh, has the most goals by players not with their team, not with their, not with the team last season. Uh, So Detroit has most of their team wasn't, was this team was not with them last season. But uh, if we're looking at it, they posted a graphic on Twitter. Um, as it stands right now, there are 63 goals by players on Detroit right now that were not with them last season. Debrinka with 18, Sprong with 13, Comfort with 11, Kane with 7, Ghost with 7, Costin with 3, Fisher with three, uh, Fisher with 2, Petrie with 2. So it's definitely interesting. Um, and it's really exciting, like I said. There's... These depth, a lot of these guys realistically are playing above their average. Um, you know, Daniel Sprong, he scored what was it, 23 or like 27 goals or something like that with Seattle last season, playing like 11 minutes. So this is on pace with him. Uh, it obviously makes sense. Comfer, he had a really good season with Colorado last year, so that makes sense as well. But, you know, I mean, Kane's a superstar, but Ghost, he had a down year last year, so he came back hard. Um, Costin, Fisher, Petrie, they're all playing above their averages right now. So, like I said, the, it, it's going to be a tough decision to see who, for Eisenman to see who he signs and who he doesn't sign. Um, so let's, let me know what you guys think about any of that. Uh, you can let me know on Twitter and stuff like that. So, with that, we are going to get into our prospect profile for this week. And this week, it was 
voted. We had a two-way tie at this for this one. It was between Edmondson and uh, Trey Augustine. So I put it up to a second vote between the two, and Trey Augustine won by a single vote. So we are talking about Trey Augustine today. Trey Augustine, who was obviously drafted this in not this year anymore, 2023 draft by Detroit. 41st overall in the second round and this was a very highly touted pick by pretty much everybody um he's from south lion michigan so he's a michigan guy the biggest thing against him was that he's only six foot one i know only six foot one um but six foot one's really small for a goaltender obviously but he has all of the skills to back it up um from everything I've seen, he doesn't track the puck incredibly, but he has an incredible, incredible technical foundation. Like, he is so sound technically that he doesn't have to track the puck because he just instinctively knows where he should be during any given play. And it's showing this season. Um, he plays in the NCAA with MSU right now, you know, teammates with Red Savage. And in 25 games, he has a 2.99 goals against average and a 9.14 save percentage with a 16-6-2 record with three shutouts. Yeah, he's kind of killing it. Then in the USA, in the World Juniors with Team USA, um, he realistically should have, I feel like he should have been goalie of the tournament but that uh, he only played four games in the tournament which was weird you would think they would uh, switch between him and Fowler but it's whatever uh, in his four games he had uh, 175 goals against with a 936 safe percentage and he won all four games he played so it's definitely definitely something someone uh, a guy to keep your eye on for Detroit because if Kosa because like I said, Costa's been having a pretty good year in uh, the AHL. He's probably going to be down there for another year or two. But if Costa isn't able to get to where he should be in time, Trey Augustine's right there to take his spot. And I think Detroit's genuinely looking at him to potentially do that. Um, as much as I like Carter Guylander, I don't think Detroit's really looking at him to potentially take that spot from Costa. Uh, but if... If you really look into it, Detroit's got some good goaltenders, and Trey Augustine is one of those top ones. So I'm really excited for him. Um, I think that he will inevitably be—he's going to be in the NHL. One one way or another, he's going to be in the NHL. Whether that's if Kosa works out, then you know you can move Trey Augustine to get a really good thing, really get a really good talent back. Um, or you can try and find some way to keep both of them, which would be great. But if they both play to what their ceilings are supposed to be, those are going to be two very difficult goaltenders to keep paid on the same team. So, sorry, I got the hiccups there. I have the hiccups still. Um, so, it's uh, going to be... in. Give me a second. Okay, sorry about that. Those hiccups just would not go away, and they probably still haven't gone away. But it hasn't happened in a hot minute, so we're going to try and ride through it. Because we've only got one more thing left on the agenda, and that is the... They haven't gone away. That is the Elias Lindholm trade from between Calgary and Vancouver. Uh, this was a big one, and honestly, if you ask me, I think Calgary pro- probably won this trade. If you're asking me in terms of win-losses... um. 
Now, obviously, it's probably not good to c- calculate how, you know, teams winning and losing trades, but this is the West Coast, so I don't give a fuck. Um, so if you guys weren't aware, which you probably should be at this point, uh, Vancouver got Elias Lindholm, and in turn, Calgary got Andre Kuzmenko, Hunter Burstwis, Burst Burzustwicks, something like that. Hiccups, sorry. Uh, Yoni Yermo, Johnny Yermo, and a 2024 first round pick, and the most important piece, the conditional 2024 fourth round pick. And yeah, this I think Calgary won uh, because Elias Lindholm is likely not going to stay in Vancouver. So. This seemed like a really big overpay for someone who is more or less a rental. I think he Lind, Lindholm still got a year or two left on his con. Still got like two years left on his contract or something like that. But that was a big price. That was a big price to pay for him. And uh, yeah, it. I mean, it uh, it does nothing but help both teams. But yeah, especially a first first round pick with three players. That's a lot and. Van, I mean, Vancouver's never been known to make, you know, trades that always win that, that they always win. You know, we've seen that with Detroit last year when Eisenman traded with Vancouver for Hironic and they got the Islanders pick that the Vancouver got from the Islanders through the Horvat trade. These hiccups aren't going away, by the way, so deal with it. So, and that, that pick ultimately turned into Axel Sandin Pelka. So, all in all... Um, exciting time in hockey. Obviously, the All Star Game happened. I didn't watch it at all, and uh, all I know is that Debrinket had a good showing. So that's all I know. That and Kucherov uh, couldn't be fucking bothered to show up really at all. He was there, but he wasn't there. So that's gonna be all for this episode, you guys. Sorry for the bit of a jumbled mess that everything was and the hiccups. The hiccups just kind of came out of nowhere. They're still here. Um, but yeah, sorry for the jumbled mess today. I've been doing a lot of back and forth, and this was the last thing I had to do today. Today, So my brain's not everywhere, plus the hiccups aren't helping. So before it happens again, thank you guys so much for tuning in to the Red, Orange, and Blue podcast. Please, if you could, leave a, rate, a rating for it um, to help cure my hiccups. And let, follow me on Twitter at the underscore Mexanadian. And the Red, Orange, and Blue Cup podcast at R-O-R-B pod. And, and yeah, you can vote for the prospect profile for that week. But anyways, thank you guys for tuning in. And I will talk to you guys next time. Adios. Welcome to my party. We're just getting started. A 